All right, praise the speed to our loving Abba that we are finished with the first five books of the Holy Bible. It is often called the Torah. Now, of course, when we say Torah, this is the modern uh, transliteration or the modern way of pronouncing it, Torah. But during the days of Moses, it was pronounced Torah because the Vav is pronounced with a U, not an O. So it is actually Torah. Can everyone say Torah? Torah, not Torah, but for the sake of clarity, we're going to talk about the Torah so that we can uh, have some kind of uh, familiarity with that, because we do have familiarity with that word. So the Torah represents the first five books of the Holy Bible written by the hands of Moses. And this is how it looks like in the modern Hebrew. So there's a Tav, a Vav, a Resh, and a He. And so when you put that together, you have Torah or Torah in the Paleo-Hebrew pronunciation. But what does Torah mean? What does the first five books of the Holy Bible actually mean? Torah. Maybe we can ask, or I could ask my beloved daughter, what does Torah mean, Sister Jenna? Yes, teachings, the law or the teaching, the law of Moses, the teaching of Moses, actually the law of God given to Moses, and he taught these commandments of Yahuwah Abba. So the first five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In a nutshell, this is what they basically teach us. In Genesis, it's all about the election of the nation. In this case, it is the descendants of Abraham. Exodus, the redemption of the nation, with Yahusha being the Passover lamb of the future, right? And then Leviticus, it's about the sanctification of the nation, through the different ceremonies and rituals and sacrificial uh, offerings given to Yahuwah God. Numbers is about the direction of the nation because they were to, to travel, to journey towards the promised land. Deuteronomy was the instruction of the nation because Moses basically uh, reminded the people of God of the laws that Yahuwah God has given to his people. So that's Genesis to Deuteronomy. That is the Torah, and it represents the foundation for Christ. Always keep in mind the scriptures really is about who? Our king, Yahushua. And so the first five books sets up the foundation for Christ. And we will show you towards the end of our study that indeed the foundation of the Holy Bible, the first five books indeed is all about Yahusha, our king. So let's go first with the book of Genesis. Genesis in Hebrew actually means Bereshit, which it means in the beginning. So when we study Genesis, it talked about the creation, right? And then the creation of man and woman as the centerpiece of Yahuwah God's work. And then we have the fall of man, then the rebellion, which led to the flood, but Yahuwah God set apart Noah, and we had Noah's ark that was preserved by Yahuwah God throughout the flood. Afterwards, there was another rebellion, which led to the Tower of Babel, and the Tower of Babel resulted in the, the, uh, the scattering of the people into different nations, 70 nations uh, to be exact. And then we have Yahuwah God setting apart a people for himself through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we go to the story of Joseph, who would eventually become basically the prime minister of Egypt. So that's Genesis. This is the truth about Genesis. However, like what we said to you and what we find again and again throughout Scripture, there is we, we can always find King Yahushua in the Holy Scriptures. And this is especially true when it comes to the Torah and the book of Genesis. Well, how many here, when they read the first five books of Moses, found Yahushua, our king? Well, if you are to read it leisurely, if you are to read it uh, at surface level, you might not find our king, Yahushua. You see, to find Yahushua in the Torah, you need to look for micro-truth. This is like the design elements of the first five books of Moses. When we go deep into examining the structure, how it is designed together, it gives us clues about our King Yahusha. Not only that, but also macro truth. 
What is macro truth? This is the typology that we study, like the rock, the water. It refers to in the future, uh, Yahushua. It points forward to the reality because the Old Testament is just the shadow of the upcoming Yahushua, the upcoming Christ. And when he came, he became the reality. But there's macro truth like similes and metaphors that point forward to the coming of the Mashiach. And so micro truth, macro truth in the Torah show us that Yahushua is basically the subject. In fact, the Torah itself is Yahushua HaMashiach. And let's go look at an example of micro truth in action. What's the very first word of the Torah? You know what the very first word is? What's the first word of Torah? Yeah, it is Bereshit. It is the first word that you read there. It's spelled Bereshit, Bet, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yod, and Tav. And so even in the first word of the Torah, Bereshit, recorded there in modern Hebrew, it contains uh, allusions to the coming of Yahusha HaMashiach. For example, when we look at the Hebrew word for Bereshit, we can decipher a meaning from it because it turns out Hebrew is a language that long ago also had what are called pictographs. Hebrew is a language that has letters, right? But in Hebrew, in ancient Paleo-Hebrew, each of the letter also corresponded to pictures that represent different meanings. And so when we look at Bereshit, we can use the Hebrew letters with pictographs. For example, Bereshit is depicted in the, with using the following Hebrew letters, the Beth, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Tod, and Tav. And so let's look at what Beth means. In the, the pictograph, Beth means a house. Okay, so it's house. So let's put house there for Bet. We look at Resh. Resh represents head, someone who is the head of the family, head of the household, someone who is first, someone who's primary. Resh, you notice it's the picture of the head of a man, right? Next, next we look for Aleph. Oftentimes, Aleph represents God because uh, Aleph represents the leader, a strong leader. It's, so it represents one who is powerful, one who lead so we can put God as the original Aleph because he's the creator of all things this is Bereshit after all he's the one from whom all things had come from now we have Shin the word Shin or the letter Shin is it says there to eat consume or to destroy so we Shin with Shin you have, you have destroy and next we have Yod with Yod when you look at the pictograph it represents a hand, an arm. And so let's put hand for yod. And for tav, we have covenant. So covenant. And so we have here Beth, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Tod, Tav. And so when we look at the pictograph, it forms a sentence, right? What does it say? House, head, God, destroy, hand, covenant. Is it pretty obvious? That Yahusha, our king, and the work of God through him is found in Bereshit. Yeah, look at it. House, the head of the household, God will destroy uh, with his own hand so that, he, so that a covenant can be created. And so in the very first work of the book of Genesis, we have Christ, the head of all things, will be destroyed by the hand of the supreme God to create a new covenant so that we can be the children of Abba. And here are the passages uh, that back that up. By the way, when we use pictographs to kind of decipher a meaning in what is recorded in the Holy Bible, we need to make sure it is backed up by scripture, because if it's not backed up by scripture, let us not place our trust in it. It is Its purpose is to point us to scripture, the literal meaning of scripture rather than the pictographical meaning. So when we look at the pictograph, it's a perfect match to what the Bible says. And so in the very first word of Genesis, we have the work of Yahuwah God through Yahusha HaMashiach, who is going to be slain or killed for our sins so that we can be his children. Isn't that nice? Now let's go to Genesis 3 verse 15. 
The Bible mentions a seed. And so after the fall of man, Yahuwah initiated his plan of redemption through the promised seed. This promised seed would become the promised son in the same way that Isaac became the promised son of Abraham. So we have here the promised coming one who will become the redeemer of mankind. Not only that, we have in Genesis 5, the following genealogy. In this genealogy of the line of Seth, we have these different patriarchs, beginning with Seth and Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and finishing with Noah. Remember, names that were given. The biblical characters were important to Yahuwah God because the names have meanings. And when we look at the meanings of these names, it communicates a message to us as well. Again, these are the micro-truths that we're talking about. This is an example of another micro-truth because when you dig deep, when you look at the microscopic level and look at the pattern, something emerges. For example, let's look at the meaning of the names found in the genealogy beginning with Adam, then Seth and Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Adam, what does that mean? What does the name of Adam mean? It means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalel, Mahalalel means the blessed of God. Jared means shall descend. Enoch means training. Methuselah means his death shall bring. The dis- uh, Lamech means the despairing. And Noah means comfort and rest. Now, when you look at the genealogy, does it communicate a message as well? Yeah. What is that message? Man appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed of God shall descend, training his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. In other words, this teaches us what Yahusha HaMashiach will do and the reason why Yahuwah God sent Yahusha. What is it? It's because of sin. Because of sin, man has been appointed mortal mortality. He was appointed to die and experience sorrow in life. This was evident in Genesis chapter 3, right? From the, fate, from, uh, the uh, sweat of your brow you shall eat. And so there's going to be sorrow. There's going to be death. But Yahuwah God had a plan. The blessed of God, who is the blessed of God? Yahusha shall descend. What will he do? He will train people. He will teach people. And his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. This tells us. That the whole gospel message is found in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. That's another micro code or micro truth. What else? Let's go now to the book of Genesis 8, verses 4. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. We studied this, this before, didn't we? Right? Remember, the ark mentioned there is what? What ark is that? The ark of the covenant, right? No, it's not the Ark of the Covenant. It's the, the ship. The ship that was covered inside and outside with what? Kofer, pitch, which means what? Atonement. And so the Ark represents the work of God's atonement. And this rest, uh, the Ark rested on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And what is the meaning of the name Ararat? The curse reversed and so when we look at when this happened the 17th day of the seventh month do you know what that corresponds to it corresponds uh to the uh, the path the third day or three days after the passover this is because the first month of the jewish calendar is october the seventh is the month of april okay we're speaking of uh, the gregorian calendar the 17th day of April is three days after the Passover. Of course, um, sometimes it's March, sometimes it's April, right? Depending on the year. The point is the 17th day of the seventh month corresponds to three days after the Passover. Well, brethren, what happened three days after the Passover? Well, that's when Yahusha came out of the grave. And so the ark landing to rest on the mountains of Ararat coincides with the resurrection of the Lord Yahushua. And so here we have, a, that's, that's an example of a macro truth. What else? 
Genesis 22, 1 to 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, and God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him. There is a burnt offering on, the, on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What we read to you is an actual incident because Jehovah God tested who? Abraham. To, to sacrifice his only, his promised son. Not his only son, but his promised son, which would be Isaac. And so, yeah, uh, Abraham passed the test because he was about to slay his son Isaac to sacrifice him to Yahuwah. But God sent an angel. However, we know this was actually Yahuwah God communicating to Abraham and to us by means of scripture about Yahuwah God's plan even before what he intends to do right on the very spot where Isaac was about to be offered. What was that? Well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, that's an example of a macro truth, right? It's a typology that points forward to what Yahuwah God will do, will do through Yahusha HaMashiach. So when we look at the book of Genesis, it is filled with micro-truth and macro-truth that reveal Yahusha HaMashiach. This is why Genesis tells us, although it's not explicit, implicit in the text, we can find in Genesis, the first book of Torah, even before the creation of the world, Bereshit, Yahuwah God already planned that his coming uh, only begotten son, Yahusha HaMashiach, will be given to die so there can be comfort and rest. His death and resurrection brings a new covenant that reverses the curse of sin and death. All that is contained in Genesis, okay? Let's go now to the book of Exodus. Do you know what the meaning of Exodus is? When we look at the, uh, when the Bible translators translated the second book to Exodus, it was actually kind of off. Because when you look at the Hebrew of Exodus, it means Shemot or Shamot, which means names. So it's the book about names. Because when we, we read the book of Exodus, it's about the oppression of Israel. Remember how Joseph became the prime minister? And so the, his descendants went with him to Egypt during the famine, and they became a prosperous people there. But because they grew so fast, the Egyptians were kind of jealous and frightened, and so they oppressed Israel. And so it was time for them to leave. And so Yahuwah God calls Moses. Yahuwah God gives him the name, which is what? Yahuwah. And so they leave Egypt through miracles that Yahuwah God did through Moses. And then they go to Mount Sinai, where the covenant has been established. So the people of Israel not only are a people in and of themselves, a nation, but also the nation of God, the people of God. And after the covenant has been made, plans were given to Moses to build the tabernacle. Because that is where Yahuwah will tabernacle or be present with the people of Israel. So that's the gist of the book of Exodus. And so let's now look for where we can find Yahusha in Exodus. There's obviously so many but let's look at some of the main parts. Of course, he is the lamb that is to be without blemish. On the 14th day of the same month, it is to be killed or slaughtered. And what's the purpose of this? It is so that Yahuwah's wrath or, or death, or, or so that death will pass over those who have the blood smeared on the doorposts of their houses, okay? And so who is this lamb pointing forward to John 1 29 the lamb of God referring to who Yahusha was he slain absolutely revelation 5 6 the picture of Yahusha as depicted in the writings of the apostle John in revelation speaks of a lamb who has been slain for the sins of people and so in exodus Yahusha is depicted as the Passover lamb now, what will Yahusha also be instrumental for, especially concerning us who, like the people of Israel, during the days of the Exodus, are also going through the same journey? Exodus 16, 
32 to 33, Moses said, Yahuwah has commanded us to save some manna. Remember manna? Because Yahuwah was to provide for the people of Israel, especially in the wilderness or in the desert. And so Yahuwah from heaven rained down bread. But this kind, this bread was special. It was called manna. And as they were giving, given manna, uh, Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put two quarts of manna in it, and place it in Yahuwah's presence to be kept for our descendants. So the manna that was being collected um, was to be placed in a jar. For, of course, they're going to eat the manna, but they are also to take some of it and store it for the descendants so that people can talk about the provision of God in the future. And so the commandment was, as Yahuwah had commanded Moses, Aaron put it in front of the covenant box so that it could be kept safe. The Israelites ate manna for the next 40 years. So Yahuwah provided manna for them. Now, why did Yahuwah God instruct them to place it in the covenant box? In Deuteronomy 8.3, yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahuwah. And so the manna was to be preserved so that the people of Israel, including future generations, would learn to live, to depend, not upon bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahuwah. And so having this as background, what did King Yahusha say? He said in John 6, 48, 51, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. But the bread that comes down from heaven is of such a kind that whoever eats it will not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. The bread that I will give you is my flesh, which I give so that the world may live. And so who was being pointed to, or yeah, who was being pointed to by the manna, the bread from heaven? It was alluding to who again? Yahusha. And so he was the fulfillment of that manna. And so what is the purpose of that manna? What's the purpose of Yahusha? He also is the one that will sustain and nourish us. And so we must go to him for words, for teachings, Teachings that will give us what? Eternal life. What else can we find in Exodus? In 17, 5 to 6, Yahuwah said to Moses, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before, before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Now this must, look, this must have looked strange for the people of Israel, right? This whole scenario where Moses takes his staff and strikes the rock and water gushes out of it. But we have to understand everything has a purpose, including this. And what was this pointing to? Well, Apostle Paul in commenting about this event said in 10.4 of Corinthians, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Of course, the rock during the days of Moses was not literally Christ, but it was pointing to who? Christ, who would be the source of water. What kind of water? John 7. 37 to 39, on the last and most important day of the festival, Yahushua stood up and said in a loud voice, whoever is thirsty should come to me, and whoever believes in me should drink. As the scripture says, streams of life-giving water will pour out from his side. Yahushua said this about the spirit, which those who believed in him were going to receive. At the time the spirit had not yet been given because Yahusha had not been raised to glory. And so this will happen only after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Yahusha HaMashiach. And so the rock that gave water, the manna from heaven, 
and Yahusha being the Passover lamb. That's all connected so that Exodus can tell us the work of Yahusha HaMashiach. Exodus tells us through the macro truth found therein that Lord Yahusha will be slain, right, as the Passover lamb, so that Yahuwah's wrath can pass over us. Yahusha will provide everything we need to, to receive eternal life through his words and the Holy Spirit. That's what Exodus tells us about the work of our king, Yahusha. So we have Genesis, we have Exodus. What do we have next? What's after Exodus? Leviticus. Now, what does Leviticus mean? It means Waikra, which means he called. And when we study the book of Leviticus, it's about Levitical laws. It's about ceremonial laws. And so we were taught laws concerning the sacrifices, the different kinds of offering, guilt offering, burnt offering, right? Remember that? You find the flower offering, the drink offering, so on and so forth. And then it talked about the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And then the laws concerning uncleanness. And it spoke about the day of atonement and then the ceremonial and moral regulations because Israel would not only be a nation, it would be a nation of God. And so it was a theocracy. And so the law of Moses contained not only moral law, but also social and ceremonial laws. And lastly, it spoke about the feasts of Yahuwah, our God. Now, when we think of these macro truths found in Torah, can we also find that in Leviticus? Yes, we find that specifically in Leviticus 23, 1 to 2. And Yahuwah spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of Yahuwah, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. These are the feasts of Yahuwah, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. You might be saying or asking, well, where can we find Yahusha in the feasts? Well, we actually find the work of our King Yahusha in the feasts. What does feast mean? What, what is the purpose of these feasts that Yahuwah God calls and refers to as my feasts or the feast of Yahuwah? Well, convocations actually mean uh, rehearsal. And so when they were celebrating the feast, it had a purpose, it had a meaning. So it had a timeline, but it also had a meaning. And the timeline is a rehearsal of events that will take place in the future, not only in the present, but also in the future. So it had a meaning in the present, but pointed to the future. It had a timeline. And we studied that before, Leviticus 23 and its structure. The first four uh, feasts mentioned in Leviticus 23, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, all corresponds to the work of our king, Yahushua, Passover, 14th day of the first month was fulfilled. Uh, Yahushua died on the Passover, right? And then he was in the grave or buried on the 15th day of the first month, which corresponds to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Feast of First Fruits, the after Sabbath, after Passover, the first month of the first month. That is, that corresponds to the resurrection of Yahushua. Pentecost, 50th day from first fruits. That was when the Kahal, the assembly was born because Yahushua would give the gift promised by Yahuwah Abba, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we can see that Yahushua followed the timeline and meaning or purpose of the feasts of Yahuwah in precise order. And so Yahushua died, Yahushua was in the grave, he was resurrected, the church was born because of this timeline, which tells us, because there's a gap, right, in the future concerning the second advent of Yahushua, he will also follow this timeline according to the Feast of Trumpets, the Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. So this tells us the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus, we can see the macro truth Lord Yahushua will be slain, buried, and resurrected 
and give the gift of the Holy Spirit according to the meaning and timeline of the feasts of Yahuwah God. According to these feasts, he will return. He will return to establish the promised kingdom of God on earth. Okay, so that's Leviticus. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, they all contain truth that point to the coming of Yahushua. Well, how about the next book? Numbers. What do numbers mean in Hebrew? In Hebrew, what word was used? It means bamidbar, in the wilderness. And so numbers talks about the journey of Israel across the wilderness. And so it started with the arrangement of the camps. You still remember how they were arranged together? And then they journeyed toward Kadesh Barnea. And they had the opportunity to enter the promised land. But instead of acting, responding by faith, they were afraid. So they rebelled against Jehovah God by rebelling against Moses. And so judgment was decreed against them. And so they had to wander in the, in the desert for how many years? 40 years in the, wilderness, in the wilderness journey. And then it talks about the Moabites and Balaam. Remember Balaam and the donkey, right? And preparations for entering Canaan. So this was in the book of Numbers. Well, can we find allusions to Yahusha? Can we find glimpses of truth about the coming and the work of the Mashiach? Absolutely. In the book of Numbers. Because in Numbers, we find something very, very provocative. What is that? Numbers 13, 16. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun. What does he call him? Joshua. It was a name change. We believe this was inspired by Yahuwah God. Because Yahuwah God, when, you know, when little things like this happen in the Bible, it's there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. You see, Yahuwah God wants to communicate something to Moses and to us who's going to read what Moses has written down in the Torah. What is that? Something significant in this name change. Because Hoshea's name has been changed to Joshua. And when we read the Hebrew of Joshua, what does it look like? It looks like that. The Paleo-Hebrew. Is that recognizable to you, that name? What is that name? Yahushua. Joshua is an incorrect transliteration of, Yahu, of the Hebrew word. It should be transliterated Yahusha, not Joshua. And so Moses was instructed to change his name to Yahusha because of the work that Joshua would do. What would that work be? to deliver the people of Israel to the promised land. That's what that name means, one who will deliver, okay? And so when we look at Yahushua, it, this is what it means. It comes from two words, Yahuwah and Yasha, right? And so when you put that together, Yahushua means I am he who delivers or I am he who saves in the case of Joshua, what name is appropriate? One who delivers, delivers the people of Israel to the promised land. However, this name that was given to Hosea during the days of Moses, this name is preserved and reserved for the coming Mashiach. What's the proof? In Matthew 1, 20 to 21, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahushua. I am he who saves. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And so in the book of Numbers, we know now, we know now that Yahushua, the upcoming Mashiach, his work is to save people from what? From sin. How will this be done? What is, what is Yahushua going to do? Well, let's go look for more clues in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 19, 1 to 2, Yahushua said to Moses and Aaron, this is a requirement of the law that Yahuwah has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish and that has never been under a yoke. What is the purpose of the red heifer that was commanded? 
It's the pur its purpose was to cleanse. Take no, it's not to atone for sin, but to cleanse. What's the purpose of cleansing? It is so that people are able to serve, to serve in the tabernacle. Because if you were unclean ceremonially, you could not serve. For you to be cleaned ceremonially, to serve in the tabernacle, there has to be a red heifer sacrifice. Okay, so that was one of the things that was given in the book of Numbers. And so how was this fulfilled by our king Yahushua? Numbers, or Hebrews rather, 9, 13, and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so we know that Yahushua's sacrifice served two purposes. One, to atone for sin, right? The blood of Christ to atone for sin. But also he became the red heifer sacrifice. For what purpose? For us to be cleansed. So that we now are able to serve who? Yahuwah Abba. You see, unless we're cleansed ceremonially by the sacrifice of Yahusha, we cannot serve. We cannot serve Yahuwah our God. It's a privilege. And only through a red heifer sacrifice can we have the privilege of worshiping and serving the living God. So Yahusha saves us from sin by atoning for our sin and by acting as the red heifer so that we can serve the living God. What also can we find in numbers that point to Yahusha? Numbers 21, 8 to 9. Then Yahuwah told Moses to make a metal snake and put it on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could look at it and be healed. So Moses made a bronze snake. Take note, it was not a golden snake. What is it made of? Bronze. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who had been bitten would look at the bronze snake and be healed. And so what we find here is the Israelites complaining again. And because of their complaint and rebelliousness and the rebellion against Yahuwah God, Yahuwah punished them. So God sent snakes, right? But at the same time, after the judgment, mercy was given. You see, they often go together. Judgment and mercy go hand in hand. And so in the mercy, in the judgment of God, he sent snakes. But in the mercy of God, he also sent the solution. What was that? He told Moses, make a metal snake made of bronze and put it on a pole. Anyone who would look at the bronze snake will be healed, right? And so this is a replica of that bronze snake that we showed you last week. You can find this erected there um, in Israel uh, to show the people uh, what happened uh, concerning the uh, book of Numbers. But after the, the, the bronze snake incident, it turns out the people of Israel successfully journeyed throughout the wilderness. They stopped complaining. They started singing praise and they enjoyed two grand victories in preparation to enter the promised land. So we can see that this was a turning point in the life of the Israelites when this snake was erected. Now, what does that mean? Because it looks very strange, right? A bronze snake. Do you know what that pointed to? What did the bronze snake pointed to? In the book of John 3, 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. What did that also represent? The son of man, when he's on the cross, to die for the sins of people. Again, to deliver people from their sins. That's why his name is Yahushua. Okay? And so he was represented back then as the bronze snake. And so back then, you had to look at the bronze snake and be healed. Why bronze and not gold? Well, when you look at the structure of the tabernacle before you enter the holy place and the most holy place, which has articles made of what? Gold. You notice that? But before you can enter the most holy place, you have to offer sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, right? Made of bronze. This is the bronze laver the, and the brazen altar made of bronze. 
Okay, so before you can enter the promise, before you can enter the, uh, the tent, before you can experience the presence of God, you have to offer the sacrifices in the bronze, the brazen altar. So bronze is for Yahuwah God's judgment deals with sin so that we can enter the pure and holy presence of God. And so we can see in the book of Numbers, Lord Yahusha will save people from sins by number, number one, atoning for their sins, right? Going through the sacrifices and by cleansing them, the red heifer sacrifice so that they can serve Yahuwah, our God. Hence, the name given to him is what? Yahusha, delivered from or saved from sin through atonement and the red heifer cleansing. Okay, now let's go to the last book. What's the last book? Deuteronomy. This should be so fresh in our minds. Deuteronomy means davarim. His words are retelling of the, war, the words or the laws of Yahuwah God. And when we study the book of Deuteronomy, it can be structured in the following manner. As a series of sermons, pastoral addresses, where we find Moses reaffirming the covenant, um, telling them again about the covenant, because this is a new generation who is about to prepare themselves to enter the promised land. So you have a series of sermons, first sermon, second sermon, third sermon, benediction, final Blessing. So when we read Deuteronomy, we are actually benefiting from the teachings of Moses, the preaching of Moses, which is a reiteration of the covenant, its promises, its blessings, its curses, and its nature and purposes. Okay. However, the book of Deuteronomy can also be seen as a covenant document. You see, during the days of Moses, uh, two parties would engage in a covenant or formal or official or legal agreement. So when an agreement is made, it has to be legal. A covenant makes it legal. And so what are the characteristics or parts of what we can consider to be a covenant, something legal, something binding? Well, it has to have the following uh, parts. Preamble introduces the parties of the covenant, who's involved in the covenant, right? Historical prologue, how the two parties came together to have the covenant. Stipulations. This is the terms of the covenant. There has to be a document clause, which is like a written reminder. Blessings and curses so that they will understand that those who make this covenant, if they obey, they get the blessing. If they disobey, they get the curse. It has to be clear to everyone involved in the covenant, right? It's like reading the fine print of a covenant. <laughs> you know everything about it. Then covenant witnesses. This has to be made public for it to be made official. Okay, so you're hiding nothing but proclaiming everything. And so that's a covenant document. So Deuteronomy can be arranged as a covenant document. The preamble, Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 5, historical prologue, Deuteronomy 1, 6 to 444. Stipulations, Deuteronomy 445 to 26. A document clause in 31, the blessings and the curses in 28, 29, the covenant witnesses in 4 and 30. And so Deuteronomy can also be considered as a covenant document, which is very, very important if one belongs to the elected people of Yahuwah God. And so we who belong to the assembly of Yahusha, we believe that we have a covenant with God. And so what is our covenant document? What proves that we have our calling and election? Well, we have the preamble, Isaiah 43, verse 7, right? Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 43, verse 7? They will be called by? Yes. By the name that Yahuwah God will create, the name of Yahusha. What's the historical prologue? How do we get there? Well, Isaiah 43, 5 to 6 tells us the historical prologue of where we came from. Where did we come from? The gathering in the islands of the sea, right? From the ends of the earth in the far east. And then Isaiah 1 happened, Jeremiah 23 happened. And so that's how we got to be. And then we have the stipulations, the terms of the covenant. What is our responsibility? It's in Isaiah again, 43.10. We are to be witnesses to Yahuwah God and to make sure righteousness will shine brightly. Isaiah 62, uh, 62 1, 2, 2. What's the document clause, the written reminder, our statement of faith that was included in our registration? What else? Blessings and curses which is found in Isaiah 24. Blessings if we will be loyal to Yahuwah God, but curses if we will betray 
You, you get that? If we will betray Yahuwah, our God. And the covenant, covenant witnesses, the registration process itself. Okay, so these are, this is the covenant document that we have that testify to our calling and election as the assembly of Yahusha. We are indeed people of Yahuwah, our God. Now in Deuteronomy, do we also find hints of Mashiach? Yes, because in the middle of Deuteronomy, we find a promise of Yahuwah God to Moses. What was that? I will raise up a prophet like you from among your fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him. I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the messages the prophet proclaims on my behalf. And so is there also an, a hint of truth or a hint about the coming Mashiach. Oh yeah, right there. Yahuwah God promises he will raise up a prophet, a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. And this was fulfilled, of course, as testified to by the apostles, then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And he will again send you Yahushua, your appointed Messiah, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. As God promised long ago through his holy prophets, Moses said, Yahuwah, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me for, from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. And so we know the purpose of this prophet is to restore all things. He will come two times. Number one, to initiate restoration. And number two, to finalize restoration. This is why Malachi 4, 4 to 5, it mentions the coming of uh, the, an, an Elijah prophet in preparation for Mashiach. But Mashiach, his purpose is to initiate when he first came. What did he do? He preached the gospel and he died on the cross. He resurrected, ascended. And so he initiated the first restoration, first part of restoration. He will come back to complete it because it's not yet complete. And so at the appointed time, he will come back for final restoration. And so from the time of the first advent to the time of the second advent, it is the work of restoration. That's the work of this prophet. So Deuteronomy tells us that Lord Yahushua will be greater than Moses and will come at the appointed time and will proclaim the words of Yahuwah God to bring restoration so that what was started in the Garden of Eden, the promised seed, will be completed. Paradise lost, paradise restored, right? And so that's through the work of Yahushua HaMashiach, the promised seed. This is why Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy is all connected. It turns out the last word, you know what the last word of the Torah is? What's the last word of the Torah? It is Israel. What's the first word? Bereshit. Bereshit, Israel. You see, the work of Messiah that was planned for in the very beginning is to restore everything culminating in the coming kingdom in Israel before the end comes and restores the new heavens and the earth. Isn't that very nice? So everything is integrated. Everything is connected. So we know Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy contains micro and macro truth that speak of the coming Mashiach, Lord Yahushua. However, how about the Torah as a whole? Does it also contain truth? Does it reveal something to us? Absolutely. In fact, we can kind of say there is a micro truth from a macroscopic perspective. It's a combination of both. You see, this is how Torah is spelled, right, in Hebrew. That's how Torah is spelled in Hebrew. You have the Tav, you have the Vav, you have the Resh, and you have the He. Torah. But in actuality, you pronounce it Tura in Paleo-Hebrew pronunciation. Okay. Well, someone, uh, a scientist, a mathematician by the name of Eliyahu Rips, he conducted research on what is called equidistant intervals. Remember, the book of Torah, or Torah itself, is composed of Hebrew letters, right? The Hebrew letters run in sequence from the beginning until the end, from Bereshit to Israel. 
And so when you, sometimes there are patterns that are hidden that you cannot see that are hidden there by purpose of design, because when you think about arts, certain art forms, sometimes the author of that art form will have a design that's hidden, right? Like a, like a masterpiece, maybe like an art, a painting, and you can find the signature of the artist and it's hidden somewhere in the painting, but it's always there. In the same way, the author of Torah has hidden also kind of like his signature and you find it in the different hidden patterns. And it's only identifiable when you have computers. And so this math mathematician, Eli Eliyahu, actually became famous also because of his work. This is from a This is from a professional journal in statistical science, equidistant letter sequences in the book of Genesis. And so he was able to show patterns in the book of Genesis that defy explanation and defy the odds that tell us there are patterns that indicate a supernatural author that could not have been placed by human thinking and ability alone, okay? And so he became famous for that. One of the things that, that has been uncovered with the help of these supercomputers is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. Because when we look at equidistant letter sequences, what that means is when you think of a number and, for example, seven, you begin with a word and then count seven, the next letter, and then count seven again and you get the next letter. And so eventually you form a word, right? And so there are patterns called equidistant letter sequences that indicate something that is from a higher source, that is not from human intellect. For example, in the book of Genesis, there is what is called a heptatic structure. In the design of the Holy Bible, there is the sevens. The number seven is prominent. Seven is called the heptatic structure. We're gonna talk about the heptatic structure when we study Revelation because there are a variety of those structures by design for the book of Revelation. We'll get to that in the weeks to come. But understand that this seven base structure of scripture is present. And so, for example, seven, which is in seven times 749, uh, 49 is a multiple of seven. So seven multiples of seven, like Jubilee and the, the Pentecost, we find... Uh, the, the, we find that this interval of 49, beginning with Torah, what's the first word of Torah again? I mean, the first letter of Torah, the Tav, right? We find the Tav right there, right there, for example, in Genesis. This is the first verse, the first verses of Genesis, Bereshit, right? And so you got Tav. You count 49 letters, you get the next letter, which happens to be what? The Vav. You got Tav, Vav. 49 letters again, and what do you get? You get the resh. You count 49 letters again, and you get the hay. And so what do you got? Wow, you got Torah. Torah, when you, when you, when you use the 49 letters of sequence. Now, you might be saying, well, that's just coincidence. One could say it's coincidence, but what if it happens in Exodus? Well, this is Exodus right here, right? And again, we got the tav. 49 letters, what do you get? Look at that, you got the Vav. 49 letters again, what do you get? You got the Resh, and then you have the He. And so that pattern is repeated in Exodus. So we have Torah, right, in Genesis and Exodus. Well, how about Leviticus? In Leviticus, guess what? You don't find that pattern. In Leviticus, there's no pattern. The 49 letter sequence pattern, it's not. But if you jump to numbers, look what happens in numbers. You find, uh, this time it's not Tav, but we have Hey, right? 49 letters again, and eventually get H-R-O-T, which is Torah in reverse. Torah backwards. Kind of strange, right? In Deuteronomy, you repeat the same pattern, we get Again, Torah in reverse. And so, so far, what we have, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when we look for that pattern, that heptatic structure, 
right? We find in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in Genesis and Exodus, it is Torah. But in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy it's Torah in reverse, which tells us it points to the center. Do you see that? What is the center? Leviticus. But wait a minute, what's Leviticus? There was no pattern found in Leviticus. You're right. The 49 sequence pattern is not found in Leviticus. But something else is found in Leviticus. When we look at Leviticus, a pattern emerges when we look for not 49, but the square root of 49, which is 7. Remember, the hypnotic structure comes from 7s and multiples of 7s. And so when we look at 7 by itself, and we look at the structure, the, the pattern, right? Guess what? What emerges? What do you see there? The tetragrammaton. And so what this tells us when we look as a whole, the Torah, right? When we look as a whole, the Torah, we have Genesis and Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, all pointing to who? Yahuwah, our God. And so the Torah always points to who? To Yahuwah, right? What's the Torah again? The law, the teaching, right? That's the Torah. Could it be possible? And so I was curious because we have in our hands the pictographs, right? So I was curious. I wonder what Torah meant using the pictographs. Because when we think about Torah pointing to Yahuwah, remember what Yahusha said? What did King Yahusha say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father except through me. It would make sense that Torah represents who? Yahusha. Because Yahusha points to who? Yahuwah. Is it possible that Torah, Torah, is Yahushua? It represents Yahushua? Well, let's go ahead and apply the pictographs. Remember, this is Tav, Vav, Resh, and He for Torah. And so there's Torah, and those are the different letters of the Hebrew, the Hebrew letters of Torah. And let's look at the Hebrew letters with the pictographs. Let's begin with Tav. What does Tav mean? Look at that. It's a cross. Initially, that's how it's represented, as a cross. So we have tav, cross, vav, we have nail. Interesting. Nail. Resh, we have a picture of the head of a man, right? So someone who is considered first of priority, of preeminence. And so resh represents a man who is the head. And hey, what does that represent? Well, it means low. Behold. And so what do we have here? Cross, nail, a man who is the head. Behold. Does that make a sense? Behold. The man who is head of all things is nailed to thee. Who is that? Who is that? That's King Yahushua. Now it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Before Yahushua came, the law, the law. Pointed to Yahuwah. But after Yahushua came, he himself pointed to Yahuwah. Because the Torah, the Torah is all about who? Yahusha. Even in Hebraic pictographs, it represents Yahusha. This is why it's true what our King Yahusha said. You diligently study the scriptures. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. But when you read the scriptures, for example, the first five books of Moses, you will not actually find any explicit information about Yahusha. But when you look at the micro and macro truths, it's so clear. The scriptures testify about who? Yahusha HaMashiach. This is why we must ingrain in our minds the only way to Yahuwah Abba is through Yahusha HaMashiach. And to go to Yahusha HaMashiach, there's no in-between person. It's Yah. We, our work together in the assembly of Yahusha is to bring people to who? To Yahusha. Yahusha will be the one to bring people to who? To Yahuwah God. You get that? 
That's our work in the assembly of Yahusha, to be witnesses for Yahusha, to bring people to Yahusha, because Yahusha will point to Yahuwah and bring everything to Yahuwah, our God. Okay, that is our lesson for tonight. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Abba, yes, Almighty Yahuwah, our God, yes. thank you so much for blessing us with wisdom. Yes, Thank you for manifesting your spirit upon us, yes, giving us something to hope for. We know you have done something wonderful, yes, even Father. before our creation, yes. even before all things. You had in your mind the coming Mashiach yes, to die on the cross as you have promised, yes. that we can be your sons and daughters. Amen. We are living witnesses to this. Yes. The work of your restoration continues yes. in preparation for the time when you will send your begotten son. Amen. Help us loving Abba yes, to share Lord. this message to all human beings. Yes, to share our faith with others. That yes. they will know about your work through Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Yahusha our King, thank you so much. Yes, As we have life and strength, may we be representative of you. Yes, Teach Lord. us not only to live by your faith, but also to proclaim you in your name. Yes. The only name given for our salvation. Help us to do our best to share this yes. with as many people as possible. That many more can be embraced by the promised life everlasting. Amen. Father, thank you so much for continuing to guide the work of the assembly. Yes. We know we have much more work to do. And so yes. as we prepare for what is ahead, may you equip us with gifts that we need. Yes. Especially the gift of your Holy Spirit. Amen. In every worship service, shower upon us more wisdom that we need and power that comes from you. Amen. We believe, loving Abba, that you have listened to our prayers. Yes, we ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.